Welcome to the Dakota Live Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Morier. The goal of this podcast is to help you better know the people behind investment decisions. We introduce you to chief investment and executive officers, manager research professionals, sales leaders, and other important players in the industry who will help you sell in between the lines to better understand the investment sales ecosystem. If you're not familiar with Dakota and their Dakota Live content, please check out dakota.com to learn more about their services. Before we get started, I need to read a brief disclosure. This content is provided for informational purposes and should not be relied upon as recommended recommendations, or advice about investing in securities. All investments involve risk and may lose money. Dakota does not guarantee the accuracy of any of the information provided by the speaker who is not affiliated with Dakota, not a solicitation, testimonial, or an endorsement by Dakota or its affiliates. Nothing herein is intended to indicate approval, support, or recommendation of the investment advisor or its supervised persons by Dakota. Today's episode is brought to you by Dakota Searches. Are you tired of endlessly scrolling through investment publications, trying to stay on top of the latest investment mandate opportunities? Look no further than Dakota Searches. With Dakota Searches, you'll never miss a new mandate again. Our powerful platform sends you email alerts as soon as new searches are posted, so you can be one of the first to know. Subscribe today for a 30-day free trial and experience the convenience and efficiency of Dakota Searches. And for even more benefits, become a Dakota Marketplace member for full access to Dakota Searches, our institutional investor database, Dakota Marketplace, and more. Sign up for Dakota Searches and stay ahead of the game. Visit our website at dakota.com backslash dakota dash searches to learn more and start your free trial today. Before I kick it off to Chris and the team, I want to introduce you to our guest, William Kennedy, the CEO and CIO of RiskBridge Advisors. Uh, Bill Kennedy is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer of RiskBridge Advisors, an independent full-service investment office serving families, nonprofit endowments, and foundations, and insurance companies. He brings over 30 years of experience investing in public and private markets and is responsible for RiskBridge's business and investment activities. Previously, Mr. Kennedy was the chief investment officer at FieldPoint Private, based in Greenwich, Connecticut, where he was responsible for $4.5 billion in client assets. From 1996 to 2008, he was with Citigroup and predecessor firm Solomon Brothers in their Tokyo and New York offices. Most recently, as the global director of City Investment Research, one of the leading research firms on Wall Street with more than 300 research analysts and strategists covering nearly 3,000 companies globally. Mr. Kennedy served on Citi's Management Committee and Wealth Management Planning Committee. He started his investment career in 1992 at the DuPont Pension Fund and held senior roles at TIAA, Century Atlantic Capital, and Marsh McLennan. Mr. Kennedy earned a BS in economics and an MBA from Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas. He is a CFA charter holder. Mr. Kennedy currently serves as the chairman of the board for the Global Interdependence Center, a Philadelphia nonprofit committed to influencing policies for the greater good through neutral, nonpartisan engagement among thought leaders worldwide. He is a member of the Economic Club of New York, the CFA Society of New York, and the University Club of New York. Let's get right into the interview. Take it away, Chris and the team. That is a very impressive resume. And Bill, thank you for taking time to join us today. And as always, um, we kick off our first question with just, just give us an overview of uh, RiskBridge, uh, how we should think about RiskBridge in the current environment. Absolutely. And good morning to you guys. And thanks for everyone for joining. So RiskBridge Advisors is an independent investment advisory firm. Uh, you've listed our clientele, but what we do really are three things. We have discretionary OCIO mandates, uh, particularly in the endowment and foundation space for nonprofits. We do wealth management for family offices and ultra high net worth individuals. 
And then we do institutional advisory. So what does that mean? Um, one aspect of our institutional advisory, we actually work with other advisors. We will uh, deliver what we consider the three M's. Uh, we do macro, we do manager research, and then we provide investment models for other independent RIAs around the country. And Tim Dolan uh, was from Dakota was kind enough to introduce us as an example to an RIA based in Illinois. So Tim, thank you for that. And uh, you know, working with other RIAs to kind of lift the burden on the investment side so that they can grow their business is, is part of our institutional offering. The other side of the institutional advisory business is working with some of our larger institutional clients on a sleeve. So where our OCIO mandate may be managing the entire portfolio, we also work with some institutions just to handle one aspect of the portfolio. A good example of that large insurance client, uh, multi-billion dollar fixed income portfolio, all that's managed away. Riskbridge was hired by the insurer to help them create, craft, and implement their alternatives platform. So we built uh, alternative philosophy, uh, bake that into their investment policy. We're doing the manager search, manager selection, implementation, and oversight uh, for for that firm. So it's a little bit of a uh, uh, little bit of everything from a, a, an institutional advisory standpoint, but all of it comes with a risk lens and thinking about risk first and how that drives returns uh, to meet our clients' financial goals. Yeah, and, and with that, Bill, right when you have such different underlying clients, we think that it brings, and I'm sure you would agree, such interesting uh, perspective across multiple underlying uh, needs from those clients and then understanding where are those risk exposures. Most people don't care about risk until we're in an environment like we're in today where it reemerges and it's real. So maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what that difference is in your conversations with those underlying clients in these types of environments and addressing that kind of risk. Yeah, so surprisingly, um, the difference between the institutional clients and, and the ultra high net worth client, for example, is not that wide. And, and here's what I mean by that. An entrepreneur, head of a family office, what they're trying to solve for is time. They, they, the the higher, highest order for them is to get more time on their hands and to try to hire somebody to help deal with the investment aspect of their, of their uh, financial life. The same is true of an endowment and a foundation, although in that case, they're focused on mission. And so we work with endowments and foundations. And one of the things we say is you focus on your mission, we'll take care of the rest. So both types of clients are trying to solve for either time or freeing up their focus uh, for mission-based purposes. Um, but what we find in our investment approach, our philosophy is grounded in this belief that uh, return is a byproduct of the risk you take. It's not the other way around. Uh, we don't solve for risk. We don't try to predict what a manager or an asset class is going to do and then just accept the volatility that comes with it. We actually target the volatility for the portfolio, and then we start to budget the uh, the amount and types of risk to solve for that given level of volatility. 
And as it turns out, that actually works pretty well, whether you're an individual investor or an institutional investor, because that risk component is directly tied to who you are, what your goals are, what your organization's mission might be. And you're right, many investors may not think about risk until uh, it hits them in the head. But what we've tried to do is help all of our clients prepare for risk in all of its different forms, uh, try to protect uh, the wealth that they've already earned or the endowment that they've been able to raise for the for the organization, and then drive that performance uh, by focusing on the risk elements and making sure that we're getting paid for the amount of risk taken in the portfolio. Bill, we have a uh, number of listeners in the market raising capital across different investment strategies and asset classes. Can you talk about your team internally from a research standpoint? Uh, are they covered? Are they covering certain asset classes, and who would be the best people to reach out to to ultimately get a meeting and, and introduce their strategy? Yeah, uh, we've got a great research team in house, which is kind of our uh, differentiator, if you will. So um, our senior managing director Molly Burba, uh, she is handling all of our alternatives research. Molly's got about 19 years of uh, industry experience. She has looked at anything that's a private placement. Um, she's got experience in that space uh, over a very distinguished career. And then on the public side, uh, Josh Kaufman and Esme Miano um, are analysts working with, uh, with me and looking across the spectrum, could be equities or fixed income or uh, other types of diversifiers. Let me share with the audience uh, what we don't do, because that might help get to you know what would be a, a useful call for RiskBridge. So we don't do seed or startup. Uh, we're we're not any good at it. Uh, I know there's there's room for it in client portfolios, but uh, we just avoid that. So, um, it, you know, that's something that we're not going to spend much time on. When it comes to thinking about how do we screen our managers, the other thing uh, we'll we'll discard pretty quickly is if it's a consistent bottom two quartile manager over a three, five, seven, 10 year basis, uh, it's probably not gonna see the light of day for us. One of the biggest mechanical or quantitative factors that we consider uh, is what we call a participation differential. And that's just simply, what is a strategy's up capture ratio minus its down capture ratio over a given period of time. The wider that spread, the more interested we are because we think that is a, a one indication of risk management skill uh, within that manager. So we don't do the startups, but what we do do is we like to look at the managers who have been uh, pretty consistently in the top one or two quartile uh, performance for their group. Um, the wider that participation differential, uh, the better. Um, and so just to give an example of that, if we found a manager with a 100% up capture ratio uh, and an 80% down capture ratio, right, that spread is 20 points, uh, that's pretty attractive. That's that's going to catch our attention and lead us to go the next stage of, of our process. So um, in terms of how to get in touch with us, if you've got a, a product or a strategy you think might be uh, worth taking a look at that meet those criteria, probably the best way is just to, to email us at uh, info at riskbridgeadvisors.com. Uh, we've got access, to, all of our research team has access to that, and we can uh, take a look at 
whatever comes across. No, it's helpful. Participation uh, ratio, that is um, good to know. I mean, obviously, we know the up, down, the up versus down. But to think of it in those terms is super helpful. Um, Bill, we always <laughs> want to know who we're talking to in terms of what the win looks like. What does a win look like at RiskBridge? Are you, are, do you have a select list? Do you have models? Or is it a, a case-by-case basis for individual clients? And then you'll have a handful of searches a year. So how should we think about that in terms of bringing a portfolio manager an idea to you and how it germinates into ultimately perhaps selection uh, on behalf of your clients? Yeah, so um, a client win for us, uh, just to give you an example, is where we come into a endowment and foundation and our target market is sort of 250 million and below. And the reason we're chasing that market, we find that they tend to be a little bit uh, overlooked and underserved by the bigger, larger OCIO firms out there. Um, and so for, a win for us is to be able to get in with the board or the investment committee, help them articulate, help them articulate their risk tolerance. Um, everyone says, you know, I want high return and low risk. We kind of put some math and some science to that to, to really help the committee understand how they as individuals uh, perceive risk and then how do they as a group think about risk. Um, that all then goes into investment policy design, uh, investment governance documents, portfolio construction. Uh, do you have alternatives? No alternatives. Are you going to be all passive or active or some combination uh, of the two? And then we implement for them. Um, then as a follow on, we work with those investment committees on education and training and thinking about um, some of the issues that nonprofits face away from the investment uh, perspective. So that that's a big, uh, a big win for us. Our approved manager list, which is what we rely on to express that portfolio and to solve our clients uh, issues is, is relatively small. It's, it's somewhat finite. Um, so we're not our research management team isn't constantly searching to add a third, a fourth, a fifth strategy to fill a particular sleeve in our asset allocation. Um, we're very targeted. And probably the thing to really know is we're we're selecting our managers based on conviction, high conviction. So when you look at the, I think now we have just about 30 strategies total on our platform. Um, we don't expect to grow that going forward, but we're always trying to build conviction in those 30. And uh, sometimes a, a new shiny thing comes along that is a, a good addition and we'll want to take a, a look at that as well. And when we find that manager that uh, meets all the quantitative components that we've already discussed, but also has a, a, a great culture, uh, is proven as a risk manager and where we can partner together, and I mean really partner together in terms of sharing of information and, and trust and everything that comes with that. That's a win for us in terms of seeing a manager come onto the RiskBridge platform. Bill, you had touched on Molly as the appropriate contact that covers alternatives. Can you expand deeper into alternatives and what that looks across your client base, obviously covering institutions to high net worth and the ability to access certain alternative strategies? But just higher level, what does the alternatives platform look like at RiskBridge? Yeah, so uh, six buckets generally. Uh, that's going to be private equity, private debt, uh, hedged equity, hedged credit, 
infrastructure and then uh, and real estate and other diversifiers. And we we throw real estate in as a diversifier. We think of multi-strat and macro as diversifiers as well. Um, so that those are the six buckets. We th- you know we think about how should we allocate liquidity and th- and think of the timing of liquidity. So you know some of the strategies are locked up for much longer, might be seven, eight to ten years. Uh, other strategies might have a, a three-year investment horizon. So we try to think about the allocation of the risk of those six different buckets, how you pair the wine and cheese and, and bring uh, all of those together, um, but also thinking about the liquidity element, particularly for the endowment and foundation community, uh, where they meet, they may need access to that capital at, at, at a reasonable period of time. And so we, tr- we try to match that liability need as best we can. Great. Bill, the topic uh, always uh, in all meetings is diversity, equity, inclusion. Uh, talk about your perspective and Risper's perspective on allocating to managers. Yeah. So as a, to begin with, as a firm, we have adopted the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion code from the CFA Institute. And that goes into our hiring policies and promotion policies and, and, and how we manage our own culture. We've had a number of prospects and clients who have put DEI at the top of their list. Um, you know, a, a, one example is a healthcare foundation that we know of where they had a mandate for 20% of their managers needed to be uh, minority or women-led. And so uh, we've we've incorporated that into our own due diligence process. So we think of that as um, in, in two ways. First of all, it's always a question that comes up in our initial screening. Are there um, managers out there that we happen to overlook um, and, and putting a, a a minority or woman-owned filter on that just might broaden our search a, a little bit further, and then we try to bring the uh, bring those managers in and just compare them. Do they meet all those other criteria? Are they consistently top quartile? Do they have a strong participation differential, up capture, down capture? Uh, is there a, a good culture of risk management there? And so uh, we try to incorporate that into our manager research process. Um, First, it just makes it for better. It makes for better research. But secondly, the clients are demanding it more and more. And I think that's going to become a, a, a bigger part of as a percentage of our overall approved list going forward. Great. No, that's definitely a structural um, reality in the marketplace and will continue. So it's always great to get perspective. Question from the audience, Dan, before you ask one. Uh, can you talk about vehicles preferred, SMAs, LPs, mutual funds? What is your vehicle of preference? Yes, all the above. Um, Good. So we we uh, we will go passive and active. And one thing I would I, I should mention that in our process, because we're high conviction managers, sometimes a, a, we'll actually take money away from a manager. We're not firing them. We're just reallocating to a segment or a source of return that we think has a better probability over the you know next. 18 months, 24 months, whatever the period might be. So that might take us from an active manager into a passive vehicle, an ETF, or out of an ETF back into an SMA. But on our platform, to answer the question, uh, we're, we're using mutual funds, SMAs, 
private placements. And if we can find a, a good strategy that has both wrappers, an, an SMA and mutual fund, all the better. It's not a requirement, but um, sometimes that's a uh, that's a plus when we can get access multiple ways. Yeah, you know, actually, Dan, I'm going to interrupt you one more time. All right, another question. Thank you for the questions. What qualifies as a quote startup? So boutique manager. Is there a minimum AUM for consideration? Obviously, you don't do seed. You made that clear. Uh, but what would be the minimum size of a manager that you'd want to look at? So our sweet spot for managers uh, is around the seven hundred and fifty to one billion dollars of AUM. Uh, will we invest in a manager with less than seven fifty? Yes, we will. Um, will we invest in a manager whose firm is three years old or maybe two years old? We will consider it if that manager has the pedigree in the background of uh, from it coming from another firm and they've they've decided to go out on their own. We we love the fact that in this business, people take their dough and put it to work in an entrepreneurial fashion to, to do a startup firm. Uh, if they've got the pedigree and the history uh, behind them. We'll take a look at that. Um, but I, I think. In terms of a, a minimum AUM size to the question, I would say hard pressed for us to come below three hundred million. Um, so that that would probably be a, a minimum for us. Good, super yeah. helpful. It is, yeah. Just understanding what that framework might look like. And Bill, I mean, it sounds like you're all very high touch with your underlying clients, incorporating that proper framework for understanding risk and volatility. You know, now here we are in a period of time in the market that is presenting certain uh, levels of stress. Uh, so within those client conversations, your client views, what are those points of stress and, and what are the opportunities that are coming out of this? Yeah, so for our ultra high net worth and family office clients, they've already made their money, right? They're hiring a risk bridge in order to, to hold on to it, to help grow it uh, over time. Um, the stress on the endowments and foundations is is a little bit different, right? Because they're trying to balance uh, meeting the needs of their organization, the fundraising objectives that they have. Uh, a donor will, will plop down a, a chunk of cash into the endowment that needs to get invested. Um, and can they meet their 5% target, 6% target? each year, uh, whatever the case might be. So those conversations are, are ongoing, but uh, we like to, uh, we like to, I joke that we have three pieces of advice to all of our clients. Number one, we advise that you think long-term. Number two, be opportunistic. And number three, give us more of your money to manage. Um, and we're at that point in the cycle now where we think the um, the opportunities are starting to present themselves, whether it's in segments of the equity market that are already priced for recession and beyond. Um, there are opportunities where we think there's going to be growth that is faster than nominal GDP, either here in the U.S. or, or overseas. Um, we would put things like healthcare and biotech and, and life sciences in that camp. Uh, infrastructure, uh, we think, is a, a pretty interesting opportunity uh, going forward. But as as we're coming into the end of this year, 
early next year and we have no crystal ball to say you know what the volatility environment is going to look like as we get into the first half of next year we do think this is a time to start looking for some new opportunities to put some capital to work you know on, on the private equity side um i think the 2023 2024 vintage years are going to look pretty spectacular I think they have a really good chance to be uh, great vintage years. So we're looking at that, and we think there's some stress in the private equity space right now. So we're thinking about secondary uh, PE opportunities as well. Bill, you touched on a, a handful of opportunities there. Life sciences, uh, healthcare was one, infrastructure, specifically for our listeners in the next 9 to 12 months within the investment committee what are the current searches you all have right now on behalf of clients? Yeah, so uh, on the public side, too, um, we are in the U.S., we're looking for uh, mid-cap equity, and that could be core growth value. We're, we're looking across the across the spectrum there. And then on the international side, we're doing the same in the uh, developed markets, uh, particularly in the in the EFA markets. If any listeners uh, are associated with a firm not based in the U.S., but they have an office in New York or uh, Chicago or San Francisco or someplace, um, we like boots on the ground uh, for our international investing and um, that in that EFA space, we're trying to identify some additional. Uh, long-only strategies that we can uh, uh, consider for the platform. Then uh, the other two that are front and center in our mind, in the infrastructure space, we're looking in three uh, sub-areas. Uh, first is just core infrastructure, bridges and tunnels and airports and things of that nature. Uh, second is the digital infrastructure. And then third is energy transition. And so anybody, uh, you know, with a strategy in, in one of those areas of the infrastructure spectrum, we'd, we'd certainly have an interest in taking a look. And then um, I think most immediately in the next next six to nine months, uh, the secondary PE opportunity is something we want to take a look at. No, that's great. No, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a lot to, to look at. And we're starting to hear more and more of longer lists as people are putting their lists together as the market's going to do what it is, creating some distress, bonds backing up, et cetera. So thank you for that. Bill, it's the bottom of the hour. It's, it's, it's a Friday. We can't thank you enough. I mean, obviously, you sit up there in Connecticut. A lot of people come to see consultants yourself as well. And, and after this discussion, hopefully everybody, if you have something topical, reach out to Bill and his team for a meeting. Um, as we said, and you know, we're hosting these cocktail events around the country. Uh, people want to be out and about. People want to be engaged in person. And I think, uh, you know, it's going to be a pretty busy fall in terms of uh, trying to get portfolio managers around and, and getting meetings with people. And the ideas are starting to flow. So, Bill, we can't thank you enough um, for your insights today. And uh, we look forward to crossing paths soon. All right. Thank you, everyone. Have a good weekend. Take Thanks, care, Bill. Yeah, take care. Thank you, Chris and the team for that insightful interview. If you like what you heard, check out decoded.com and register for the next Dakota Live call every Friday at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. You can find this episode and past episodes on www.decoded.com as well as Spotify, Apple, Google, or your favorite podcast platform. Finally, we are available on YouTube if you prefer to watch while you listen. Thank you all for being here and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Don't say good.